One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 217, The Cardinal's Hat. Just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, just go to agorapodcastnetwork.com for a smorgasbord of goodies. Before I start, you might also like to know that next week, although there is no episode for the History of England, there is a big shedcast. It's about a person, a famous person, as opposed to Alan, who works in the chippy on the Iffley Road. I'm not going to tell you who at this point, but I will offer you a quote from said person, which is this. Who is it that reputedly said, Rules only make sense if they are both kept and broken. Breaking the rule is one way of observing them. Well, I'll leave that with you. Today, we will continue with Henry's foreign adventures, but we also have da 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 return of the weekly word. I confess I'm cheating a little, since I've not actually written said weekly word. That honour belongs to one Mary Campbell, listener and now contributor. Thank you, Mary. So, we left Henry fuming away in 1515. His beloved sister Mary and his best mate Charlie Brandon had gone and got married without his permission to be duly banished from court. His new rival Francis has arrived as the new King of France. With the arrival of Francis, a new element will enter Anglo-French relationships, the kind of personal, hormonally driven rivalry of two young men. Francis is in many ways a mirror to Henry, but a mirror plus. He's young, just three years younger than Henry, immensely powerful, aggressive, a wallower in the world of chivalry and courtly love, but also a lover of the new learning, patron of the arts and a man of letters. He's physical and a lover of the hunt like Henry, He's a sexual predator, though to a far greater extent than Henry, probably. Francis is reputed to have had an affair with Mary Boleyn, although many historians think the whole Mary Boleyn and her affairs in France thing is exaggerated, which will come to at some point, I guess, like a moth to the flame. Whether he did or not, what is not in doubt is that Francis I had a cascade of affairs, keeping two mistresses, actually, at court during his reign. Firstly, Françoise de Foix, and then Anne de Pisseleur d'Ailly. So, ha, les Français, eh? None of this sneaking around corridors, keeping up appearances the English messed about with. The really irritating thing about Francis, though, as far as Henry is concerned, is that his toy is the most powerful single kingdom in Christendom, leaving England's wealth and prestige no larger than a pimple on the French buttock politic. Gah, so annoying! So far... Henry had tried war with France by invasion, and he'd tried peace. He was now feeling a little short, bob-wise. The next strategy he and Wolsey cooked up was war by proxy. OK, we'll pay others to fight the wars on our behalf. Now this might sound counterintuitive. We're a bit strapped for cash, so we'll go and pay for some mercenaries. And certainly Henry the Seventh size would have been rolling so much he'd have been looking backwards through the back of his head. Don't fight at all, son! He'd be screaming from his personal booth in the nether regions of the underworld. 
Avoiding war and diplomacy altogether was simply not an option for Henry VIII, of course. Perish the thought. But the point is that expensive though it was to pay for others to fight, it was far cheaper than raising and running an army by yourself. The obvious recipients of a contract were the Swiss. OK, so they'd been defeated by Francis at Marignano in September 1515, but they were still considered the best pikemen in Europe. Henry and Wolsey took a deep breath and signed a new priest with Ferdinand of Aragon. Both had learned that Ferdinand was pathologically unreliable, so neither expected much from this, but at least they could maybe keep him quiet for a while and not actively on Francis's side. Meanwhile, Henry's agent, an optimistic kind of bloke called Richard Pace, was in Italy, Switzerland and the Empire, drumming up business on behalf of the English crown and agreeing with the Swiss to pay for an army for 30,000 quid. That's a lot of money, but it's not £900,000, so you take the point. By comparison with making war yourself, it was as cheap as chips. For Wolsey, all this diplomacy was also crowned with final confirmation were such a thing needed that he was now firmly sitting at the right hand of Henry. Wolsey's personal priority, and present to himself, was a cardinal's hat. Wolsey and Henry had been bidding for the cardinalate for some months, and were at the point of mild irritation that nothing had yet been achieved with the Pope. Wolsey loftily declared that it was important not personally to him, of course, no, no, he wasn't interested in worldly honours and baubles, no, no. It was important only in binding Henry closer to the Pope, which view took at face value, of course. But then, when Francis invaded Italy, the inherent instability of international politics thing reasserted itself, and suddenly Pope Leo was all smiles. And by September 1515, Wolsey was a cardinal, though he would not become a papal legate until 1518. This was not enough, of course, because before Wolsey could really lean into the warm, fuzzy feeling that power and recognition gave him, he needed something else. He needed a hat. And not just any old hat, he needed a cardinal's hat. The whole hat thing is something of a hoot and really brings home the early modern love of pageantry and power and display. I mean, it was a hat. Anyway, said hat was conveyed to England by a cardinal, and didn't arrive on these hallowed shores until November 1518. Wolsey had been busting a gut with impatience. Where's my hat? When's my hat arriving? Why is my hat here by now? Who's got my hat? Letters had been pouring out of York Place. The hat-accompanying cardinal finally arrived at Dover from Italy and started out for London, but this was nowhere near good enough for Wolsey, so he rushed down there and made the cardinal go back to Kent, decked him out in grand clothing so that he could make an entrance again, this time with all the proper due ceremonial. This is a hat, for crying out loud. Even at the time, the good cardinal's attempt to big himself up on the basis of a hat was greeted with the sound of sniggering, muffled but gently by hands placed over mouths, as the sacred object made its way grandly to Westminster. William Tyndale, the great Protestant and translator of the Bible into English, acidly remarked that the hat was conveyed, quote, with such triumph as though it were the greatest prince in Christendom come into the realm. Wolsey forced the leading peers of the country and the Lord Mayor and all his aldermen out onto the streets of London in the cold and air of November to greet the revered piece of millinery. As Tyndale related, 
The hat was then placed on the high altar at Westminster, surrounded by burning tapers, quote, so that the greatest duke in the land must curtsy thereto. On the 18th of November, there was a grand ceremony in Westminster Abbey. It was, thought George Cavendish, Woolsey's biographer, like, quote, the coronation of a mighty prince or king. As the scarlet hat descended towards the head of Ipswich's favourite son, Woolsey would have been trembling with pleasure, not just for the power this conferred on him, but because it symbolically completed his superiority over both church and state. Because the man doing the hatting, if that's the right word, was the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, William Warham. Warham was a miserable, worldly-wise, curmudgeonly and weary kind of man, whose favourite phrase was Era Principis. Mors est. The king's anger is death. It also allowed himself to be replaced by Wolsey as the Chancellor of England. As they left the church in procession, Wolsey was preceded by two crosses, while Warham was preceded by nothing more than a small boy with a skin complaint. Well, I don't know about the small boy or indeed the skin complaint, but he had no crosses, is the point. John Collett did his best to prick Wolsey's bubble by preaching the sermon on the theme, quote, Whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Warham may therefore have felt slightly better during the sermon, but the agony was not over for him or for others, because then after the service everyone was forced to traipse down to York Place, led by the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk, would you believe. I can imagine Norfolk swearing increasingly vicious curses with every step he took. In the newly built grand and magnificent banqueting hall at York Place, Henry and Catherine joined them all for a great and extravagant feast. I think you can understand, can you not, why the nobility of England hated Wolsey and generations would hold him up as the prime example of vainglory and the excesses of the church. But anyway, if by the end of 1513 Wolsey was in control de facto, by the end of 1515 he had all the required offices to boot. It was now official. And the relationship between king and cardinal was as close as could be. We're used, I think, to the later image of Henry. We know what he'll become. Vicious, domineering, brutal in punishing his ministers. Henry's 22 now, and he's still diffident, still open to views and opinions, still respectful of his servants, and particularly so of his cardinal. They were seen walking together arm in arm in a way that will never happen with Thomas Cromwell, for example. A contemporary noted that Henry spoke of Wolsey as though ye were his own father. Before we go back to the war in Italy, and speaking of fathers, it might be a good idea to catch up with on Catherine for a while. Because the last few years had been difficult for Catherine, with the toing and froing with her father, she'd inevitably caught a bit of the fallout. Henry was heard venting his fury on his wife by a contemporary. He had reproached her with her father's ill faith, and he got his loud complaints to her off his chest. Catherine responded by choosing between her father and her husband, and her decision was, this time at least, to become more English than the English. The Spanish ambassador was having a grim old time at court, and he found Catherine was no help to him at all. The few Spaniards who are still in her household prefer to be friends of the English and neglect their duties as subjects of the King of Spain. 
He complained that he could make no use of the influence which the Queen has in England, nor can he obtain through her the smallest advantage in any other respect. Really, most of the men in Catherine's life did her no favours, certainly not her father, though there was one on whom she relied, namely her confessor, Fray Diego. Catherine herself described him as the best confessor that ever woman in my position had, with respect to his life as well as to his holy doctrine and proficiency in letters. Fray Diego had been a constant in Catherine's life and an adviser who had helped her cope with politics, court life, even sex. Sadly for a friar, the quality of Fray Diego's advice in the sex area was based on way, way too much first-hand knowledge and indeed practice. Diego had his faults, however much Catherine relied on him. He was haughty and arrogant. He continually misused his position as confessor to organise life to his own advantage and consistently and heroically licentious. He was therefore unpopular with pretty much everybody else apart from Catherine, including Karoth, the ambassador. And in 1514, his enemies got him up in court on a charge of fornication. He was, of course, convicted, and despite his desperate pleas to Henry, he was sent packing back to Spain. A little of the life, support, and the things that made life bearable for Catherine went with him. None of this was good for her, and in 1514, she once again miscarried. By October 15, 15, of course, to bring us back to the current day, her father was finally back in Henry's good books. That same year, Catherine wrote to her rehabilitated father and the tone of her letter had already changed in the fire of the disappointments and the pressures of the previous year. There is no people in the world more influenced by the good or bad fortune of their enemies than the English. A small success of their enemies prostrates them, and a little adversity of their antagonists makes them overbearing. As historian David Starkey notes, Catherine is in all likelihood talking here in coded language of her husband. The tone's a bit weary, a bit critical, it's a bit cynical. You can visualise it, can you not? the bombastic Henry booming his opinions all over the place, whining bitterly as the twists go against him, and crowing and beating his chest when the turns come his way. And meanwhile, Catherine still hadn't delivered of his son. But while the latest diplomatic round played out, Catherine was pregnant again. While she was in her confinement, news arrived which was held from her. It was the death of her father, Ferdinand. After decades, cheating his way through the political world, he'd finally met a situation he couldn't lie his way out of, and he set off to make his apologies and excuses to his maker. Within two months, both Castile and Aragon had bowed to the inevitable of his daughter's incapacity, and both had accepted Charles as their king, though Joanna was for a while joint monarch in theory. Charles was now king of Spain, and at the age of 16 had put his foot on the first step, that would lead to the most remarkable empire under his control. Holding the news back from Catherine may have been the right decision, because at last she safely delivered a child. It was, of course, a girl. The Venetian ambassador was a man called Guistiniani, 
When he heard the news, he didn't rush into court. If it had been a boy, it would have been rats, drains, all that sort of gig. As it was, he chilled for a bit, made himself the diplomatic equivalent of a nice cup of tea and a bit of lardy cake, and then, when he had nothing else to do, he sauntered over to congratulate the king quote, on the birth of his daughter and well-being of the queen. The state would have been yet more pleased had the child been a son. It can't be doubted that Henry would have been disappointed, knowing what we do about his later thrashings and pain just to get a male heir. But he kept his chin up. Maybe Catherine would have preferred, What are you talking about? This will be the first ever Queen of England and about time too. Who cares about the great chain of being? Give me sexual equality every day of the week. But I strongly suspect, actually, she'd have been herself both shocked and disapproving. I think she'd have been perfectly content with the answer Henry did give Gristiniani. We're both young. If it was a daughter this time, by the grace of God, the sons will follow. Well, actually, she was 30. Chicken feed these days, of course, not so spring chicken-like in the 16th century. Both Catherine and Henry would have had to have been superhuman not to be a bit worried. And not just them, it has to be said. As long ago as two years ago, the rumour had reached back to the Vatican of concerns about Henry and Catherine's marriage. When Louis and Mary had got married, the report had been sent to Rome that, quote, The King of England meant to repudiate his present wife, the daughter of the King of Spain, his brother's widow, because he was unable to have children by her. But maybe, for a while, the birth of a healthy child allayed the fears just a little. Anyway, that counts as a digression on a mammoth scale, since we were supposed to be talking about war in the autumn of 1515. Just to refresh your memory, the Swiss and Maximilian had pressed the French back to the walls of Milan. Everything's looking good for England's war by proxy. Unbeknownst to Wolsey, and indeed the Royal Council, the King's agent in Italy, Richard Pace, was promising that the English would join the battle by invading northern France again. This seems to have been the King's idea, not Wolsey's. And then, would you believe it, picking up the garment of unreliability that Ferdinand had left lying on the ground, Maximilian suddenly upsticks and legged it from Italy, leaving the Swiss holding the baby in the face of the irate French. Understandably discouraged, the Swiss faltered. Then, when Wolsey and the Council caught wind of the glorious invasion of France idea, their combined disapproval forced Henry into abandoning the idea, and the Swiss threw up their hands and went home in despair. Yet another campaign had ended in failure, but Henry did not give up, and Pace picked up with Charles now that Ferdinand was out of the way, and with the offer of egregious amounts of English cash, yet another French alliance did begin to be moulded from the clay of European politics. It cost a lot of money, but by October 2016, a league had been signed to maintain a new army of Swiss in the field against France. Hurrah! Maximilian's price had been as enormous as the crocodile. But at the start of January 1517... It all turned to poo. The French arrived in town with wads of cash. There's a lovely coincidence, actually, that the letter from Francis offering loads of cash arrived at Maximilian's court just as he was swearing to the treaty with England. I can just imagine him crossing his fingers as he sealed it. Before you could say overdraft, the news arrived in England that Henry was utterly and comprehensively betrayed again. Maximilian had signed the Treaty of Noyon with France. Not just that. 
As part of the English subsidy, Henry had paid Maximilian £4,000 to help him hold Verona against the Venetians. And now, Maximilian sold Verona to the Venetians for 2,000 quid. Nice work, if you can get it. The word kipper springs to mind, as in stitched up like a... Before Henry and Wolsey could recover from that blow, the next one landed flat bang on their collective hooters when the news arrived that Charles of Spain had also signed up to the Treaty of Noyon, essentially acknowledging French possession of Milan and agreeing to marry Francis's infant daughter Louise, who would bring the rights to Naples and Sicily with her. England was the laughing stock of Europe. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now then, we'll find out more about that next time. Before I move on to the weekly word and Mary Campbell, I expect there were three responses to the clue at the start as to the subject of the next Shedcast. Some of you will have scrubbed forward and found the answer. Naughty. Some of you will have a brain so large that you will have immediately spotted the quote and who it's from, and the majority of you, I imagine, are either waiting or have forgotten or really just don't care. So, I'm going to give you another quote from this bloke. Who was it that said... Romantic love is an illusion. Most of us discover this truth at the end of a love affair, or else when the sweet emotions of love lead us into marriage and then turn down their flames. Does that help? OK, so the weekly word, or maybe better, the word, since it's not weekly. Though I remember that the word was a genuinely hideous programme with Terry Christian and Denise Van Outen. I have an image of sandals and poo. I shudder to remember. Anyway, the word comes courtesy of Mary Campbell, who is a writer, editor and poet, and her website is anagrammatica.com. If you need a writer, that's anagrammatica.com. I'll put the link on the historyofengland.co.uk. These are her words following, except the thing about blickling. And our subject is first names. In 1499, at the absolutely stunning house of blickling in Norfolk, which seriously has to be one of the most beautiful in England, and equipped with an excellent bun shop to boot, an actor was preparing to enter our Tudor stage, namely one Mary Boleyn. A couple of years later, there would be another born to the king's diplomat and courtier and minion, Thomas Boleyn. When the Boleyns chose to call their infant daughters, Mary and Anne, the Bible was a leading source of babies' given names. Today, that source is more likely to be Hollywood or the heady word of international celebrity. So consider Victoria and David's baby girl, Harper Seven Beckham, born 2011. In the years since Harper's appearance on the planet, Harper as a girl's name has soared in popularity. The name Seven, not so much, though considered a lucky number for Papa David, who played number seven shirt for Manchester United and England. Had the Beckhams resided in Germany, the name Harper would have been disallowed. 
The German government has strict rules about baby naming, banning gender-neutral names, last names as first names and product names. Though some parents have tried Lego and iPod without success, there's a relief. And Germany isn't the only country with more or less restrictive naming lords. So, what exactly is a given name? A given name, also called a first name, forename, Christian name or personal name, is distinct from a last name or family name, such as Jones, Baker, Berlin, Campbell or indeed Crowther. The name is given you at birth rather than inherited from your parents. It should be noted here that in many Asian countries, the family name's position is given before the given names. So the terms first name and forenames don't apply. Contemporary naming practices go back thousands of years to the time when nomadic Indo-European people roamed the steppes north of the Black Sea. Proto-Indo-European is the ancestor of English and most of the European languages, as well as many Asian ones. For Indo-Europeans, the conferring of given names involved a week-long religious ritual. We know a great deal about their elaborate naming practices based on the naming rituals of their widely separated descendants. For these ancient people, naming was more than a matter of distinguishing one little creeper from another in the community. The chubby one, the hairy one, the one that jabbered non-stop. Or making sure that when you wanted chubby, you didn't get hairy or chatterbox instead. No, according to researchers in Indo-European culture at the University of Kentucky, naming was meant to secure the future reputation of the child. The ultimate goal of an Indo-European individual was to become a legend. It was the poet's job to make sure that heroes and their deeds were well known throughout the civilization long after they were gone. In fact, the words for fame and name are related, sometimes even synonymous, in several daughter languages of Indo-European. Vital to the success of these epics was a powerful name. An epic tale about a man named Weak in Battle might not bode well for the poet, or for Weak in Battle himself for that matter. Indo-European names reflected the values of their culture, namely fame, the guest-host relationship, gods, battles, strength and leadership. Many of the names used back then have come down to us nearly unchanged. Fergus derives from Indo-European words meaning manly and vigour, Albert from a pair of terms meaning noble and bright, and Ludwig means famed warrior. This sort of naming is called aspirational, and is not so different from naming a child Faith, or Felicity, or after someone admired, especially someone from the Bible, as a way of associating the child with the characteristics you hope that he or she will develop. Which brings us back to Anne and her namesake, Hannah, the mother of the Old Testament prophet Samuel. Anne was once a common name in French and English-speaking countries. Originating with Hannah, it became Anna in Latin and Anne in French and English. I, frankly, would not want to wish the biblical Hannah's life on my child. It was written that she watered her couch with tears. But there are odd parallels between Anne Boleyn and Hannah. Hannah longed for a son but was barren until specially blessed by God. When she finally gave birth to Samuel, she dedicated the child to God and left him at the temple to serve God, quote, all the days of his life. At least that's what she said. I know many parents, especially those with colicky babies who cried non-stop for the first three months out of the womb, who would have been delighted to drop their little sammies off at the temple and leave them in God's care until he cleared up the colic. Today in the UK, France and the US, 
you'd be hard-pressed to find a newborn called Anne. But the name was common enough during the reign of Henry VII to belong to two of his six wives. Three, of course, were called Catherine. The other was Jane, which is a feminine form of John. Catherine, on the other hand, is not a biblical name and might even derive from the pagan goddess Hectate. But by the time of Henry's reign, it had become associated with the Greek word katharos, meaning pure. The 4th century Christian martyr St Catherine was venerated in Syria and returning crusaders introduced the name in Western Europe where it quickly became popular. And so to Mary, which was the name of the firstborn to the Boleyns of Henry's sister and his daughter who would become England's first female sovereign and which was more common than either Anne or Catherine. Today it's actually rare to come across a baby called Mary But until the mid-20th century, the name, with its derivatives and diminutives, was by far the most common girl's name in the US, the UK, France and a number of other countries. David breaking in here, by the way, as a Tudor podcast that Mary presents something of a challenge, of course, since it was so blessed popular. Not that Mary, the other Mary, that sort of thing. Mary was so popular, of course, at least in part, because in late medieval England, before the Reformation, the cult of Mary, the mother of God Mary, was massively popular which makes it ironic that the origin of the name is obscure, possibly Egyptian, from Beloved, though Sea of Bitterness is a less palatable alternative, actually. And it comes to us from Hebrew and Greek, in the form Miriam and Maria. Anyway, back to Mary, the Mary Campbell, that is, not Mary, Mother of God, and let us speak of derivatives and diminutives. A derivative is something that is based on another source. Thus, as said, Anne is a derivative of Hannah. A diminutive is a sort of nickname, one that conveys intimacy or endearment, as I'm sure you know. Thus, Nan became a derivative of Anne, it is believed, from a blended form of mine Anne. So picture the medieval mother rocking her sweet little Anne and cooing, Ah, mine Anne! And eventually slurring the combination into Nan, and then tacking on another syllable to produce Nancy. Possibly because there were just way too many Annes and Nans in the village or manor. And by that very same process, the rocking, cooing and slurring of mine Ed, Ned became a diminutive of Edward and Loser a diminutive bestowed by small crowthers on the head of the family. Perhaps because, in England at least, the name Mary was considered too holy to be conferred upon mere mortals until the 12th century, Mary has a host of diminutives, many of which have spun off to become given names in their own right. These include Molly, Polly, Mimi, Mitzi, Moira, Mora, Maureen, Marion and Marianne. By golly, who the elbow? Chances are that when you took your medieval newborn to the church, the medieval priest would decline to christen a wee Mary and gently suggest you call her Joan or Anne instead. An early form of name censorship that one might think is no longer practised and one would be wrong to so think. Naming laws are alive and well, from Denmark and Sweden to China and New Zealand. As in Germany, some of the more common naming laws worldwide stipulate that the name must reflect the baby's gender. No unisex names allowed. If such laws were in effect in Britain or the US, you could call your child Chris, but the legal name would have to be something like Christine or Christopher. Now, Sweden enacted a naming law in the early 1980s specifically to prevent non-noble families from giving their children noble names. The law still bans so-called 
unsuitable names, which accounts for the rejection of one particular name spelled as follows. BRFXXCCXXMNPCCCCLLLMNNPRXVCLMNCKSS-QLBB11116. With 39 consonants and five numerals, the name appears unpronounceable. But his parents pronounced it Albin. It's my guess that it was composed by a gap jumping around on a typewriter, somehow managing to avoid stepping on any vowels. New Zealand has rejected dozens of applications for loopy names, usually for obvious reasons, as in the case of Yeah Detroit, Fish and Chips, Sex Fruit, and, my personal favourite, Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. Yet, according to Wikipedia, New Zealand authorities let the name Number 16 Bus Shelter slip by uncentred. Gah! New babies in China are now required to have names that can be read by computer scanners. In the US, naming restrictions vary by state. Sometimes, as in China, names are disallowed because they're incompatible with record-keeping software. A few states ban obscenities. Others have no restrictions, citing the Bill of Rights as protecting free speech, which in their view includes free naming. In the UK, according to the Deed Poll Service, you must give your child both a first name and a last name. These names must be pronounceable, may not include numerals or symbols, the Beckhams will be all right, as the word seven is spelled out in Harper's name. They may not ridicule people, groups, government departments, companies or organisations. They may not be vulgar or blasphemous, and may not promote any of several objectionable things, including illicit drug use, racial or religious hatred, or criminal activity. So, do not, if you live in the UK, name your child Robber Bank, or why not try pot? Finally, the UK discourages names that might mislead people into believing that you had a particular title, rank or position. Thus your first name, or your child's, may not be Sir, Lord, Laird, Lady, Prince, Princess, Viscount, Baron, Baroness, General, Admiral, Captain, Professor or Doctor. That's it for given names then. If you have questions or comments, address them to President of the United States Campbell, care of the History of England podcast. Thanks. And thank you, Mary. I've been meaning to do something on surnames as it happens, and hopefully this will so prompt me. The last time we did surnames was back in the 12th century, so it's time for an update, since back then they were a hardly formed concept. Anyway, the name again was Mary Campbell, and hop along to anagrammatica.com. And so we come to the end. Before I tell you the subject of the next Shedcast, here's one more quote, which will surely give it all away. Who was it that wrote... I do none harm, I say none harm, I think none harm, but wish everybody good. If this be not enough to keep a man alive in good faith, I long not to live. Not sure if you've got it yet? I am rather liking this quote thing. We could make it a regular or even a competition. Anyway, the answer for those of you who have not guessed it is Sir Thomas More, the saint. The great proponent of the new learning the creator of Utopia, surely one of the most referenced works of all time. The ruthless burner of heretics. The great lawyer. The perpetrator of some of the most hideously patronising and condescending jokes of all time, particularly when directed at his wife of the moment. The man who forced heretics to convict themselves from their own mouths. And yet had the gall, the nerve, the lack of intellectual honesty to deliver the quote we've just heard. A line written in a letter to his beloved daughter Meg, but be designed 
for publication to build the image he wanted people to believe. A man for all seasons. The next Shedcast, for members of course, is next week, while here on the History of England we'll be back in two sen night, or a fortnight as it's called, although apparently people are using the word much less than they used to. Oh, enough, time to go. Good luck everyone, and have two great sen nights. Mm-hmm.